Welcome to the Holy Cross Sermon Podcast. This whole year we're exploring the life and teachings of Jesus in the book of Luke. We're in a series called Kingdom Life. We are looking at how Jesus taught believers to live. Join us now as we dive into another passage. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, thank you this morning as we come to worship. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to speak. Would you come now and fill our hearts and minds? Would you come now, Lord, and fill my words? Would you come now, Lord, and open the scriptures to us that we might be led to Jesus? We pray in his name. Amen. Well, there was a time in the early 15th century when Spain possessed uh, both sides, uh, both uh, Spain and the, the northernmost part of Africa. They controlled the Straits of Gibraltar. If you don't remember your geography, the Straits of Gibraltar are that stretch of water between Europe and Africa, connecting the Atlantic Ocean and the Mediterranean Sea. And Spanish coins at that time were inscribed with the words ne plus ultra, which is a Latin phrase meaning no more beyond. The Spanish believed there was nowhere else to go west of them. There was nowhere else to go beyond them. And if you did wander through the Straits of Gibraltar and out into the endless sea, you would be surely in great danger because in their minds there was nothing out there. They simply couldn't conceive of something beyond that which they had already perceived, what they already believed to be true. And then, of course, came the discovery of the Americas, and to the Spanish's credit, right, they changed their coins. They changed the inscription to say plus ultra, which means more beyond. Friends, when it comes to the return of Jesus Christ and the cataclysmic judgment that will affect everyone, I suspect that the typical American and probably also the average churchgoer, well, they generally would say like the Spanish, nay plus ultra. You know, there's there's not really anything beyond. Like there's nothing coming down the road toward us like that. But in the gospel lesson today, in Luke 17, and all throughout this section of Luke, by the way, Jesus is talking about his return and about the coming of his kingdom in fullness. And he explicitly says that there will be a future kingdom and a a future judgment. There will be something beyond. Plus ultra, says the Lord. Let's take a look at the gospel and we'll walk through it a little bit so that we might unpack what it says and maybe dispel some things of what it doesn't say. So that, of course... We might both be encouraged and perhaps uh, hurried along, reminded, awakened where we need to be awakened, that there truly is more beyond. So remember, as as Jesus is uh, heading toward Jerusalem, this is his last trip, and he's on the last leg. He's heading toward the cross. He's moving into Jerusalem, and he's on his way there. All around him at this point in his ministry are these huge messianic expectations. 
It's been building over the last three years, and it's really culminating as he's making his approach toward Jerusalem, right? He's been moving through these borderlands between the Jewish uh, lands and the Sumerian lands, and now he's making that turn, and he's going to be going up that long stretch from where Jericho is down in the valley along the Jordan River up the highway to Jerusalem, which sits on top of the mountain. And so one of the days as he's doing this, the Pharisees corner him, as they often did, and they ask him a question, when will the kingdom come? And he gave them a very short answer. If you you notice the way that he engages with them, he said basically, look, the kingdom is different than you think it's going to be. Verse 20, he says, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. See, they were only looking for what they already knew. They were anticipating that the Messiah would overthrow Rome like every other conqueror that they had ever seen in the world, a conqueror in military might. So in their minds and in their expectations, they had this limited role of the Messiah. And consequently, they had limited, at least in their minds, what God could do and would do through his Messiah. And this, of course, was keeping with their own prejudices, with their own expectations, with their own power structures, with their own desires, and, of course, for their own benefit. Well, they had an A-plus ultra view of Messiah. And they had an A-plus ultra view of God and what He would do in the world, nothing beyond what they could figure out. And so Jesus gives them only a little bit of information. That's the way it typically is with God. He doesn't pour out a lot to the disinterested. He doesn't pour out much to the proud. No, He is interested in the humble. He's interested in those who are coming toward Him, who are seeking Him out. When we seek, we always find. When we knock, the door is always open. When we ask, we get answers. And so he basically says to them, look, the kingdom is in your midst, which you got to know just frustrated them to all get out because they couldn't see that. They couldn't figure that out. But he's not talking about a realm at this point. He's talking about the rule and reign of God. And specifically, he's talking about the king. Now think about a kingdom for just a minute. A kingdom is basically, it begins with the king, it's about the king, and it ends with the king. So if you go read the books of First or Second Kings in the Old Testament, you see over and over and over, so-and-so began to reign in such-and-such such a year. And there's this long litany of kings and what they did and when they did it. But the focus in all of those little vignettes, all through those books, is about the king, each of the kings of either Israel or Judea. And so Jesus is standing there in their midst, and he's basically pointing to himself and saying, the king is here, the kingdom is here. Why? Because the king is with you. And of course, they couldn't see it, and they didn't want to see it. I'm the king, and my kingdom is right here. The question, though, that he was posing to them and that they couldn't figure out is where he actually wanted to rule and reign. So they were thinking he would rule and reign Jerusalem and Israel and then the world beyond. But Jesus wanted to rule and reign in their hearts and in their minds. Just as Jesus still wants to rule and reign in the hearts and minds of you and of me. 
And the thing is, is when he rules and reigns in your heart and mind, then one day you'll also be with him when his realm is established. And yet the opposite is true. When we reject his rule and reign in our hearts and our minds and in our lives, then when the time of his realm comes, so also we'll be outside. So that's all he gives the Pharisees. It's just this little bit. And you've got to believe they were frustrated as always because Jesus just wouldn't do it their way. And yet to the humble, to the disciples, he gives much grace. He gives much abundance. And he opens up for them and for us about his return. But I suspect, if you're like me, it's, it, it's not all the information you could always want. It's like tantalizingly detailed and yet vague at the same time. Uh, it always reminds me of like, you know how like your five-year-old comes to you and says something like, hey, where do babies come from? Like you don't give them all the details about human procreation. Right? You give them what they can handle. And it sort of works that way, I think, with regard to the end. Jesus gives enough, but not so much. And we may not like to think of ourselves like the five-year-old, but in relation to the Almighty God, yes, we are much like that. We don't fully understand the complexity of the issues that are involved. But let's see what he does say about the kingdom and about his return. Well, the first is pretty obvious. He says it's not going to come in its fullness right away. There will be a time lapse. His coming won't happen straight away. And we're living in the midst of that. Verse 22, he said to his disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. That was his term for himself. Citing Daniel chapter 7, this one like a Son of Man who sits enthroned by the all-glorious God. Right? This eternal man. You'll long and desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you'll not see it. Now, we heard this same theme last week in the parable of the Minas, right? The nobleman went away for a, for a time, and then he came back as a king, and he settles accounts with his servants. Well, you see the same thing here. So you, you watch in the Scriptures for repeated themes, because those are the kind of things you can go, oh, okay, God's trying to help us really dial in on this one. He's repeating himself. He's a good teacher. Good teachers tend to say the same thing in different ways over and over. The fullness of the kingdom, the consummation of the kingdom, the totality of the kingdom, and the return of the king would be delayed. And his followers would long for his return. I think for me personally, that has made more sense to me this year than any other year of my Christian life. She gets it, right? Like longing for Jesus' return. I mean, has there been a point at this year in the midst of pandemic and injustice and political distress and financial concerns and health concerns where you haven't thought at least somewhere along the way, good Lord, I wish you'd just come back. Like I get it this year. Last year, maybe not so much. But this year, there have been moments where I thought, yeah, I sure wish you'd come back. And that's what he's talking about. There would be delay and his people would find themselves at various points, usually in times like this, of struggle, strain, toil, war, turmoil, when we would long for the return of the Son of Man. Just get it over with, Lord. Because pain has a way of doing that, doesn't it? Causing us to want it to cease. And one of the ways those of us who know Christ understand that pain will cease is upon his return. 
when he'll restore all things, when we are in his presence where we're told no more tears, no more sorrows, no more shame, no more heartache, no more brokenness, no more relationships that fail, no more death of those whom we love. So will it be in the presence of the Almighty God. And of course, there should be some kind of longing within you for that. It's a longing for home, not just fix it now, please, Lord. There might be a little of both, though, right? But that longing for home is one of the indicators that you know you're no longer of this world, that you have become His, and His Spirit lives within you. Now, during His absence, He says, there will be all kinds of false claims that He has returned. Verse 23, and they will say to you, look there or look here, but do not go out and follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. There have been all kinds of false messiahs and false Christs since the time that Jesus was here. And there are going to be others. That's what we need to kind of solidify in our thoughts. There will be other false Christs and false messiahs. Whether or not it happens in our day, it will happen. There are all kinds of cults out there where leaders raise up. Maybe they've got some sort of uh, power of seduction, maybe even spiritual power, and they seduce even sometimes the people of God to following them. But he says, look, somebody says there he is, or over there, or over here. Don't listen to it, because there will be absolutely no doubt when he returns. And it gives the illustration like lightning flashing across the sky. You don't even have to directly see lightning to know it's there, right? The lightning can happen over there, and and we're looking this way, and we still understand that it has occurred because that flash comes and the thunder rumbles. And that's the illustration he's given, right? That you're going to know. You don't have to be afraid that somehow you'll miss it. It's it's not going to... It's not going to pass you by should it occur in your lifetime. Well, secondly, he says, not only is it going to be delayed, but in the meantime, he's going to be rejected. And that's exactly where he's headed. He's headed to the rejection of the cross. Now, he came purposefully to go to the cross, but still in the process, the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and most of the people who would have called themselves the people of God rejected him because... They couldn't conceive more beyond what they already thought. And he talked about his death over and over and over again, and nobody really got it until after his death and after his resurrection when he was standing in their midst, showing them the wounds in his hands, he's eating fish with them, he's appearing to 500, he's making multiple appearances all throughout the place of Jerusalem and even beyond It didn't make sense until after that. But here's the thing. The rejection of Jesus didn't stop at the cross. People reject Him all the time. There may be people in your life who are rejecting Him. Maybe even in your immediate family and you know the pain of what that's like living in the midst of a divided house, divided friendships, the challenges that that presents. People will reject Him all the way until His return. But of course, the rejection leads to the cross. And the cross leads to our salvation. And the resurrection is proof that the cross was enough. But of course, there are so many people back then and also now who cannot conceive of a Messiah who dies 
a servant who suffers, a God who is crucified, and a Lord who rises from the dead. Because we're limited by our small expectations and are no more beyond thinking. Thirdly, he says that his return will be sudden and it's going to be unexpected and people will not be prepared. Everybody say, not prepared. Verse 26, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So Jesus conjures up two of the stories from the book of Genesis, the flood and then the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he's trying to show what it's going to be like. People are going to just be going on about their lives, doing normal stuff ignoring godly men and women who are saying things like there's more beyond. There is a God who comes. We must answer to him. He loves us and he's made a way to come to him through his son Jesus and they'll be busy going on about their lives, ignoring, rejecting, just too busy and doing good stuff, right? Marrying, planting, doing business, living their lives, but ignorant And then this cataclysmic change comes. I mean, both of those stories are, you know, they're they're some of the starker stories in the Bible. The flood and fire. And that's verse 30, when the revelation of the Son of Man comes, or what it's going to be like. The word there in the Greek is actually apocalypto, from which we get the word apocalypse. And that means a radical unveiling. Like, and think about if you've ever been somewhere, you know, far north in the winter, Canada, New York, Michigan, right? And you're in your wonderful climate-controlled environment, and then you step outside and into a blazing wind that just cuts literally through your clothes and into your very bones. Has anybody ever felt that experience? I know we're in the south, so some of you moved away from that experience, right? Right? It's that that's apocalypto. That's a radical unveiling of the weather on your body. And and it's that kind of thing that happens. There's this this picture that there's going to be something tremendous. And of course, all kinds of people have come up with all kinds of ideas, often out of the book of Revelation itself, which is the book of Apocalypse, some of which are more credible than others, but all of which are kind of future-oriented and some of which should be seen symbolically and some of which have been misinterpreted over time. So you have to be careful with these things, not going too far beyond what Scripture says and what we can understand. Because people get all kinds of weird about this stuff, which is partly why we avoid it. But we don't want to avoid it, because it's all over the New Testament. Jesus is letting us know what the world will be like just before the final judgment in His return, right? It'll all be business as usual, and then. All right, fourth, Jesus warns that our earthly lives can be a hindrance to our spiritual salvation. So if you're tempted to tune out, this is the point to tune in. Your earthly life 
can be a hindrance to your spiritual salvation. Verse 31, on that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away, and likewise let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Here's a little trivia, second shortest passage in the Bible. That's just a freebie for the next time you're playing Bible trivia. Shortest verse is Jesus wept. Second shortest, remember Lot's wife. All right, there you go. Freebie. Stay with me. I make myself laugh sometimes. I'm sorry. <clears throat> you can laugh at me. I'll, I'll laugh with you. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Okay, Jesus is saying, be sure you've got the right priorities. Remember, he's talking to disciples, not the Pharisees at this point. He's talking to people who have chosen to follow him. Like, if your house is burning down, it would be ludicrous to run back inside to get a $20 bill off your dresser. You've got to have the right priorities. And it's easy to lose the best when you're living for the good. And that's why he tells us to remember Lot's wife, the story of Lot's wife. She looked back and it cost her her life. She was mourning the life that she had. And she was second-guessing what it meant to follow God. The cost was more than she wanted. She had to let go of her life, what she had known, and they were wealthy, and what she had had, the possessions, the stuff, the money. She had to let go of the good things of this earth, and it was too much. It was her desire to carry her old life with her that became the means of her death. Now, I've got to say that over the last 20 years of pastoral ministry, much of which has been done in this area, my observation is that many people, not everyone, but many people are trying to add Jesus onto their lifestyle. Like, we want heaven... And we want our lifestyle as well. And there's this battle that constantly goes on and you can feel it in your parenting and you can feel it in your marriages and you can feel it in the tension of trying to add Jesus on. And he says, I'm not an add-on to life. I am life itself. Don't make me an add-on. Verse 33, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Um, If you've not read the book Not a Fan by Kyle Eidelman, it's a good read, a very very easy read. He's a very very good writer, a good preacher, really. He's taken his sermons and put them in a book. He describes being at the gym one day, and he's on the elliptical, right? He's just cranking it out. He's looking through the window, and he's watching this guy get out of his car and head for the gym, while he's hammering a blizzard from Dairy Queen. He's got to finish that thing, right? He's on his way in, eating his blizzard as he's going to the gym to work out. He wanted to be healthy, but he wanted that blizzard too, didn't he? Now, this is not a, a commentary on working out or the way you eat or the way I eat. But that's how a lot of people try to follow Christ. We want the blizzard and we want the gym. We want Jesus and we want our lives. We want a casual, no-strings-attached kind of relationship where we get heaven, but don't ask too much of me now. No sacrifice. 
But Jesus is saying you have to choose. And you can only cling to one kind of life. Now lastly, Jesus points out that His return will mean safety for some and judgment for others. Verse 34, I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed, one will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together, one will be taken and the other left. Now, he's, he's showing that there's going to be a separation between people. Right? One's taken, the other is left. Now, notice the closeness of the relationships, right? In the same bed, likely husband and wife, right? Two women working together closely. That process of grinding was something that you did uh, very interrelated. So on the day of his coming, there's going to be a distinguishment that goes on between people, right? Those who are his and those who are not. One is taken to be with Christ and eternal joy, eternal joy, and the other will be left to face God's judgment. It doesn't really say how that happens, and I don't think it's, at least not in this passage, it's not like poof, right? They disappear, like the book series that was written many years ago, that Left Behind series. That's not from this. It may be from another uh, passage, but but here, the, the way the Greek reads, it's just a distinguishment, one taken, one left. And the point is that those who belong to Christ are safe. Everybody say, I'm safe in Him. I'm safe in Him. All right? I'm taken to where He is. To be with Christ is to be in eternal joy, bliss, delight, the love. Any love you've experienced in this life is but a pale comparison of the great love God has for you. And the delight of our Heavenly Father poured out upon us because of our trust in His Son, Jesus, will be the same delight He has for His Son, Jesus. It says that in John 17, the same love the Father has for Jesus, He has for us. Now that is mind-blowing to me, to think that that's how God views me, that's how God views you, with that kind of love. His heart is toward you and not away from you. But again, the opposite is true. Those who reject Him will find themselves outside. And that's the really uncomfortable part in all this, at least for me. All right, now let's just apply this and we'll bring it home. Because Christ's return will be unmistakable, you don't have to be afraid that you'll miss it or that it'll pass you by because one of two things is going to happen. Either you're going to die... And if you've trusted Christ, be in His presence in that joy I was describing, or He's going to return and you will be taken to Him in that joy that I was describing. You're not going to miss out, again, if you belong to Him. And so if you don't belong to Him, it's not occurred yet, and therefore there's time to explore what the Bible says about Him or to surrender your own control over your life to the one who loves you and created you and knows you and has extraordinary good for you. So that's the first thing. Second, because Christ's coming is going to arrive unexpectedly, Jesus says, and the Bible says, live prepared lives. Like, don't mess around with it. Like, be engaged. Recognize there is more beyond and live accordingly. Well, how do you do that? I think the the simple answer and it's the thing that I've been walking into personally for the last 30-something years is, is growing in my love for Christ 
above every other thing in my life so that He becomes number one in my thoughts, so that He becomes number one in my actions, my intentions, my plans, my direction, my past, my future, my present, allowing Him to rise up. And when things come against that, whether it's my plans or other things, good things even, I allow the Holy Spirit to shape that in me, to bring question to my heart, not because He comes to condemn, but because He always wants to set free. He comes to release us and to give us more. And, and so we read the Scriptures, and so we engage in worship, and so we live lives with other people in close community so that we might be transformed into His likeness. That's part of the preparation process, allowing our lives to be shaped by Him along the way. And of course, we have to learn things like forgiving others quickly, not holding grudges, letting go of bitterness, stopping gossip, you know, all the juicy things that kill your heart and kill your relationships with others and hurt churches and hurt families and devastate friendships. And so we put Christ first and we put others ahead of ourselves. We learn to serve. We learn to go lower. We learn to raise others up around us to encourage and build up. We make sacrifices of our time and our talents and our treasures. As Erwin McManus says, a life that we clutch and hoard and guard and play safe with is in the end a life worth little to anybody, including yourself. And only a life given away for love's sake is a life worth living. God created you so that your life would count in this world. But that only happens when you live for more beyond. And the good news is there's not just more beyond, there is much more beyond. Let's pray. Father, would you make us a church that really believes there is more beyond and that we see it not as something to be afraid of, but as something that will be the greatest joy we've ever experienced. And yet, Lord, help us to live soberly, as the Scripture says, understanding the times prayerfully and lovingly for the sake of the people around us. Help us to have eyes for those who are far from you that we might love them well and lead them toward you. Not for our sake, Lord, but for others' sake and for the great glory of Jesus, our King and our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.